This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my entire comic book collection is eligible. Actually, just the ones that I paid no more than 25 cents for. Was the issue in question worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 143rd episode of The Quarter Bin, we are looking at Gods for Hire number one from Hot Comics. Cover dated December 1986. Now during the epic, epic, epic episode 100, we looked at a couple of obscure books, many with poor Gene Hendricks as my guest. And of course, on free comic book day episodes, we've looked at books from pretty small and little-known presses. But in terms of the ordinary, regular Quarterbin episodes, Hot Comics and Gods for Hire have to be as obscure as we've ever gotten. But before we talk about that, we have a little feedback. And the first bit of feedback is from me. I mean, it's kind of more like an announcement. And it's an announcement that is at least a year overdue. Because it was in the fifth anniversary episode of the Shortbox Showcase a year ago, August, that M and I talked about the fact that our older episodes had fallen off the podcast feed. Now, this is because of our own methods that we use for the feed and the blog and file storage, which, uh, no surprise, are the most inexpensive methods that we could find for doing a podcast. In fact, all of that stuff I just mentioned is free to us. And along with Apple's rules and specific apps and devices used, all of that leads to a limit on the number of episodes available via a podcasting app at any one time. It's a pretty big number, like 150-some episodes in there. But there is a limit to the amount of episodes that we can have in our feed. So way back then, over a year ago, Em and I talked about setting up alternative feeds for those older episodes. And, well, I never really got around to it until... The very sweet Karen from the very sweet Between the Pages blog, where food and pop culture meet, asked a simple question. My husband has become a big fan of your wonderful podcasts and wants to listen from the first episodes forward. What's the easiest way to download the older episodes in your RSS feed? And I stalled for a few days, figuring out how long it was going to take to get the new feed up and running. And she said she was just downloading the episodes manually from the website. My husband is on the first episode ever where you talk about Dr. Doom. That would be episode four, covering Thor 409. Eventually, I got that up and going and let Karen and her husband, John, know about that. And this, I guess, is pretty much the first time I'm publicly announcing it. I think we did put a a tweet out on the Relatively Geeky feed. So if you want to join the Williamses and listen back to some old episodes of this show, check out Quarter Bin Classics on your favorite podcatching app. I'm adding an episode or two or three per day, and by the time this episode comes out, 
there'll probably be about 40 episodes in that feed. Now, let me make two important comments about those old shows, if you've never heard them or haven't heard them in, in quite some time. And that is that the episodes were way shorter than episodes are now. Certainly the first couple of dozen probably averaged 20 minutes. And the background music was omnipresent and way too loud, especially in the first maybe 15 episodes or so. So you've been warned. (laughs) But again, check that out at uh, Quarter Bin Classics. Then a few days after I set that up, I did hear from Mr. Between the Pages, who thanked me for setting up the new feed. I have a serious vision issue, so I get my comic book fix these days by listening to podcasts. And I'm a big fan of the shows that UNM produce. I swear, the first four Quarterbin episodes you recorded were just for me. Back when I could read comics... I was a big fan of Superman, The Legion, John Sable, when written and drawn by Mike Grell, and Doctor Doom. So I'm loving these early episodes. Two quick questions. Did you ever get Thor 410, the second half of that story? I was also amazed to learn that you were a fan of The Legion, because other than episode 100, I'm not sure you've ever covered an issue of that on the quarter bin. If not, there are a Legion of Legion fans waiting for it. Thanks for making such wonderful podcasts. All my best, James Williams. Well, thank you, James and Karen, for helping me get off my butt and finally getting around to setting up Quarterbin Classics. Now, to James' specific questions, it's actually a no for both. I did not follow up on the Thor issue on that show. As a matter of fact, I checked, and I've never even read that issue, period. That, at least, I should fix. And if I find it in a cheap bin, I will talk about it here. And on the Legion, enough other people were blogging and podcasting about the team at the time that I just kept putting it off. But yes, you're right. Except for the Megalong episode 100, we haven't had any quarter bin Legion talk. But I should definitely reconsider that position. There are Legion books in the database, no doubt about that. Now, a couple notes about the classic feeds uh, before I I, I move on. Uh, Once the quarter bin is caught up, I guess we're going to move to Shortbox Showcase, and I'll probably work on getting that one set up towards the end of 2019. Now, in terms of more recent past episodes of the quarter bin, we heard from Tom Panaris from Pop Culture Affidavit and the soon-to-be-wrapped-up-in-country podcast, and more importantly for this bit of feedback, he's an actual high school English teacher. After a few episodes that had short stories, I asked Tom about the literary history of twist endings in short fiction, and being the cool fellow that he is, he replied. So after reading through DC's Time Warp, a title I might have to track down, by the way, and seeing a number of twist endings, you asked, Do mainstream and literary short stories tend to end with a punchline or a twist? I spent some time thinking about this and doing some light research into the topic, and I think I can say that while there are a large number of short stories that don't have any punchline or twist, there are still many that do and are famous for doing so. My mind immediately turns to the works of O. Henry, 
and Guy de Maupassant, whose story, The Necklace, I used to teach in freshman English. There are also Liam O'Flaherty's The Sniper and Kate Chopin's The Story of an Hour, which have especially tragic cases of irony, as well as many stories by Roald Dahl, whose Lamb to the Slaughter is in my all-time top five favorite short stories. But there are also a number of short stories that might not have any sort of twist or surprise ending, but still have a moment that comes up unexpectedly and winds up serving as that punch. So you're getting a variation of a sort on a twist ending. I'm thinking of Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, J.D. Salinger's A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, and Joyce Carol Oates' Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? All of these deliver punch endings in the form of violence and make the story stay with you long after you've stopped reading. I hope that answered your question. An episode about short stories is on the list of possible special topics episodes for Stella and I to cover on required reading, so we might explore this more in depth. Sci-fi and horror are seriously underrepresented when it comes to English curricula, and I'm happy to do my part to bring it to school. Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, Ray Bradbury's The Velt, and Damon Knight's To Serve Man, all of endings that can be so gripping and memorable. They can make even the most surly teenager reread to figure out why they didn't see it coming. So, in short, not all stories end with a twist, but even as we get further away from the punchline sort of ending, an important rule of short story writing remains, and that is that you really have to stick the landing. All the best, Tom. And he added this P.S. that he knew I needed to know. There is an enormous digital archive of issues of the classic sci-fi magazine, Galaxy Magazine. It's available at archive.org for free, which, as we all know, is a great site and a great price. Those, my friend, are true, true statements. So thank you, Tom. Sorry for this topic. I should say thank you, Mr. Panneries. Appreciate you taking the time to answer that question of mine. I've also been communicating with Mike Zomkowski about his Quarterman finds across the country. We decided that there needed to be a database of comic stores and used bookstores across the country that have cheap comics. I don't exactly know if I'm going to organize that, but I can be the clearinghouse for that information. But here are two of Mike's recent dispatches from the cheap comics front. Ancient Comics, near the Seattle airport. 50 bins of quarter comics. And last month I was in Minnesota for work, and a nearby comic shop was closing and had a clearance sale. Their misfortune was my lucky day. I got a whole long box for $30, which comes out to less than a quarter per issue. That's pretty close to a dime per issue if that long box was full. This was fun lugging back on the plane through the airport. I was pretty jealous of Mike up until that part about the airport and the plane. But I appreciate your tenacity and your commitment to discount comic books. Good listener. Nay, good man. 
Now, last time around, we talked about two Ghost Rider issues, or maybe one Ghost Rider, depending on how you counted it. Billy D. from Monsters and Magazines, a blog and podcast, said he was looking forward to listening. And Dr. Ange had a penetrating question about my, as he said, fuzzy logic about allowing that book into the quarter bin with the price, etc. If one of your students applied that fuzzy logic on one of your exam questions, would you allow it? To which I responded in a very calm manner. I like to think I'd give the student extra credit for creative thinking. But actually, I'd probably fail them and send them to the dean's office. What's your point? The good doctor also had a few comments on the issue itself, or at least on the character. I always thought Ghost Rider's look was boss. My few encounters with him, Marvel team-up, what-if, scattered guest shots, were all decent, but I never had the gumption to seek out the book and buy it. I do like the monkey's paw aspect of his deal with the devil. Always read the fine print? Yes, Doctor, that's a good point. That fine print is the key with every deal with a demon. I'm not saying that hellspawn beings and lawyers have a lot in common with each other, just, you know. Now, Laurel Mountainflower from the Hunters podcast also expressed concern about my possibly flouting the rules by counting that as two comics. Is it really two if they don't include letters pages? Now, I'm going to choose to ignore that awesome question, Laurel, on the grounds that it would tend to diminish the number of times I could pull this particular trick on an unsuspecting audience. Now, in this case, the middle of the book did contain a reprint of the cover of the second issue. So I think that, sort of, in a a manner of speaking, from a certain point of view, counts. But that does raise a general point about the listeners of this show. Y'all ask too many really good questions. I mean, it's annoying sometimes, yes. But I guess I'm saying, keep them coming. Randy Watts heard Ghost Rider and was hoping for the guy on the horse. But to no avail. You may know this, Randy, but I did once talk about the Western character, Ghost Rider, on an episode of Back to the Bins a year or two back. Randy also asked if we were doing anything special on the network this year for Halloween. And it's not not for this year in terms of a quarter bin episode. I have this weird thing that if I do something two years in a row or even just too often, I have to keep doing it. It becomes inviolable tradition. And the only event I'm really comfortable with handling like that is Free Comic Book Day. But other things we've celebrated or observed, mostly Halloween and Veterans Day as our examples, I do plan to get back to on this show, but not for this year. Now, I do enjoy, as I call it, seasonal reading. We did a tax episode on 1 April 15th when Wally West worked for the IRS. And the very first year of this podcast, our late December episode featured Luke Cage, which was my way of Wishing listeners a sweet Christmas. 
Now, on the other hand, Randy, I do cover that seasonal reading on the Comics Reading Journal. So the October episode out in early November will have a segment in it about horror books I read during the month. And similarly, the November episode out in early December will have a segment for war books that I read that month. Great question. That last episode received social media love from Brotherhead Aaron Moss, Al Sedano of the Resurrections podcast, Hal Jordan, Luke Giaconetti and Gene Hendricks from Two True Freaks, Derek William Crabb from the Fanholes podcast, Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, the JB podcast, We Love Comics, that's nice, we do too, Manuel Carmona of Truthful Comics, Ivan Chudley, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Silver Age Medusa, Chris Willette, and Vinny Gianfredi III. Thank you all for that awesome feedback and even for the tough questions. Because you lovely listeners are the best. But we do have to move on because we have a really obscure comic book to talk about. And we'll do that right after this. In 2014, two comic fans joined forces to do a Doom Patrol podcast. As there was no Doom Patrol comic series at the time, they called it Waiting for Doom. That was us, me, Mike, and him, Paul. In 2016, DC Comics became fearful of the power of Waiting for Doom and sought to appease us by bringing the comic back. Uh, That's not exactly how it went. In 2018, terrified of the sheer horde organising power of Waiting for Doom, DC Universe announced a Doom Patrol TV show. Uh, I think they were planning that without us. In 2019, they again brought back the Doom Patrol comic, hoping we would not smite them. Uh, This makes no sense. In 2021, they realised we were the most unstoppable force in existence and released a Doom Patrol movie. Uh, This is pure fantasy now. In 2022, a terrified Motion Picture Academy awarded the Doom Patrol movie every single Oscar, including Best Documentary and Foreign Language Film. Uh, That's enough, Paul. Look, we just love the Doom Patrol and have fun talking about them. You can find us on all podcast places and now Spotify. And check out our website, WaitingForDoom.com, or we will wipe you out, all of you. And we're back. Gods for Hire, number one. At a cover price of $1.50, meaning I acquired this issue for a very legitimate and acceptable 83% off the original retail price. The cover of Gods for Hire by Barry Crane and Kelly Jones shows eight characters in adequately dynamic poses. Unfortunately, they're against a yellow and orange background, which doesn't do a lot for the overall composition. The characters are okay, the positioning is okay. These guys are early in their careers, the artists I'm talking about, and just about everybody involved in this book is early in their careers. And from the cover, it kind of looks that way. There's something about it, and the logo doesn't help. But the cover does appear to me to be almost professional. Not quite, but close. I've seen worse. And with small press and indie comics, I've seen much worse. The story 
ostensibly called the Saturday Nights, that's Nights with a K, we'll actually talk about that title later, but it was written and edited by Joe Jute, with art by Barry Crane and Del Barris. Both the ComicBookDB and Comics.org also credit as a co-writer with Joe Jute, Jack Hammer. Which has to be a pen name, right? Especially since this uh, Mr. Hammer only has a few other credits to his name. Very strange. We start in old Japan, where it was your duty to fight fires. One firefighter enters a burning building, and he doesn't come out. No one could have survived that. We then meet Kent, who has been a god for two weeks now, although he hasn't noticed yet. He sees Melanie from across the street, and the two grab a meal. She comments on how his skin is glowing. It's, it's tingly. He tells her that he's dead. Only kidding, I think. He tells her about his terrible auto accident leading to his death, and also where he's been in the two weeks since. In the flashback, we see him landing in a room of yellow and gold and statues. And he meets a man named Grail, who tells him he's in hell. But Kent knew that had to be wrong. If this was hell, why did I feel so great? He meets six others there, all of whom recently sort of died. These new folk are welcomed by a purple and gold-clad fella named Ambrosia. He is the overseer and declares these seven the new knights of Avalon. Kent is going to be the Fist. His good friend Clark is there as well, and he's given the name Magician. In time, you will perceive the things you have always dreamed of. Yes, that's right, the lead character is Kent, and his good friend is Clark. Okay, that's cute. The others include Masaki, who I believe is the firefighter from the first two pages. He is Dao, while Juan becomes Magic Man, different from Magician, I guess, and Laura becomes Kyoki, the Japanese word for madness. A couple of these are already in super cool hero costumes, by the way, but not all. There's someone called Zero and a brunette lady named Jill, whose code name we don't learn, uh, at least not right here. Back in the restaurant, in present day, Kent continues to tell Melanie a story about how the knights are to keep the balance between Avalon and Mu in check. Those are sort of like order and chaos. He continues, jumping back to tell the events in Avalon, wherein the master of Mu has his gargoyle and dead army strike at Avalon. The Prince of Mu has his Shadow Knights attack these new gods, separating them from the older Avalon Knights. Dao disappears from the fight because the battle is not following the laws that Ambrosia established. Deciding he must reevaluate his position, he disappears from the battlefield and confronts Ambrosia. Kyoki and someone who might be Zero are away from the rest of the crew and Zero walks away to talk to he who must not be kept waiting. He slices his hand and his blood brings forth an image of Lord Dark, who appears as a curly-haired blonde girl with a cute bow in her hair. Zero reports that he has the Kyoko girl, just like you said, 
Avalon is as good as conquered. Our warlords report nothing but success. We await your command. And the cute little girl changes to an evil green-blue alien type of face. Bring me Ambrosia. The end. So as my old buddy and podcasting contemporary, Trennis Magnus would ask, what did I think of this? First of all, the narrative structure. I'm just not sure how in relating this story, Kent would know all of these behind the scenes things, and we never actually get back to the restaurant to sort of wrap up the storytelling portion of this. So I guess we're still in the past, though the cliffhanger makes it seem like something dramatic is happening, but he's in the present relating the story, so he must have survived and seems to be in kind of a good mood. That whole aspect of this doesn't make sense. And also, what I think about this is that I really needed poor Gene Hendricks on this one because, spoilers, this is not that good. I don't want to give anything away, but this one is hovering right at the, is it worth a quarter, borderline. Now, a little bit about Hot Comics, the publisher. Over the duration of its existence, it produced a total of eight issues of five titles, including this and another issue of Gods for Hire. Actually, let me start here. I get the gods part. They have powers of gods that are even referred to that at least once. But the For Hire part of the title, there is not a hint of that in the book, now, to be fair, that name, Gods for Hire, and the pretty boring font on the cover, were last-minute changes. I called this story The Saturday Nights. That was actually what the title of the entire book was supposed to be called. But it was changed at the last minute for legal and trademark reasons. And I mean at the last minute, as in the letter from the publisher inside the issue welcomes us to the first issue of The Saturday Nights. And the house ad for next issue is advertising The Saturday Nights, issue two. And that just seems like the kind of thing a more professional operation might have caught a little sooner in the process that they might have a problem with the name of the comic book. So I'm not inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt on the hasty title change and the new font, because perhaps those both were rushed but perhaps they should have known better as well. In terms of the writer and the editor, Joe Jute, this is his fourth professional writing credit out of a total of 12. So I admit that I don't feel bad for not having heard of him before. And there was nothing in the story that makes this stand out, makes it different from the scores and scores of origin stories we've all read of ordinary people coming together to form a team with strange new powers. We've read this a million times. And most of those million times, it's been more clear and dynamic than this. There was a lot that was not clear. I'm assuming the firefighter in Asia who dies in those first two pages is the Asian gentleman who appears in Avalon and becomes the Zen-based hero Dao. 
I'm assuming that because there's no evidence to the fact, no name given, no overt connection. I'm just assuming that those first two pages had to be related in some way to the rest of the comic. But again, the comic doesn't tell me this. And the numbers don't add up. The characters on the cover, the characters in Avalon, and the named characters. They aren't the same number of characters. So I imagine this is one of those cases, it's happened to me in writing my own stories, where just what's in your head makes perfect sense. You know how things are related, how things are connected, how the story goes from one spot to another, the flow of scenes, the connections. But to the reader, it doesn't make the same sense. Jute understood the elements of comics, and I give him credit for ending with a cliffhanger, a surprising dramatic turn. But in terms of the overall story in this issue, there's just not a lot of there, there. In terms of the art, for penciler Barry Crane, this is his sixth professional job. Most of his previous work was for first. And again, it shows as the work of a person early in their career. I don't mind criticizing his artwork as primitive and simplistic, because he did stay in the industry for about a decade. So he must have improved. Again, sixth credited work. His two highest profile gigs were probably Sonic Disruptors in 1988 and three issues of Conan in 1995. It's the inker, Del Barris, who may have had the most distinguished career in comics of anyone involved in this issue, not counting Kelly Jones on the cover. I mean, the talent uh, that produced the insides of the comic. At this point, Barris had only been in comics for a year or so. But I think whatever good things are in the art, and I'm willing to I'm willing to give Barris the credit for that. And he was pretty prolific for the 10 years that he was active in comics from 1985 to 1995. A couple of the costumes aren't bad, there is that. But there are a few pretty shaky ones too in terms of color schemes and design elements. And the colors? Well, they are colorful, so that's something, right? Even for the mid-1980s, this is not professional-level coloring. It's just all too much. But in a weird way, the fact that it was colored in an era where black-and-white independent books were a definite thing, producing a fully-colored comic book, I have to say that is actually an achievement. Now, it may have added to the costs of the comics, leading the company to only be able to produce eight issues before going away. I'm assuming the cost of coloring was part of the, the issue with the short lifespan of the company. That, that's just a hypothesis. But again, in retrospect, I'm going to give him credit and at least say coloring the comic was a bold choice. I mentioned that the writer of the story, the creator, was also the editor. I mention that here to ask you this question. Are you familiar with the phrase I before E except after C? As in the word perceive, P-E-R-C-E-I-V-E? Well, on page nine of the story, it's spelled the other way, the wrong way. That by itself is not a big deal, but for me, it's just emblematic of the many, many problems that this issue had, the kind of problems that could definitely affect my verdict. The verdict 
on Gods for Hire number one. For anyone who remembers the epic, epic, epic episode 100, let me just reiterate, I really should have had poor Gene Hendricks on this episode to cover this with me. It was that ungood. We had eight characters on the cover, seven in the book, and what I could tell, only five of them were named. And the art is semi-professional, when it's at its best. One of the nicest things I can say about this is that I'm impressed that it was colored. I'm not saying it was colored well. I'm impressed that it was colored at all. There are plenty of small press independent books from this era, the mid-80s, that are solid, that are entertaining, that are fun, that are at or at least approaching professional levels of quality. I like many of those books. Ask Darren and Ruth. They enjoy many of these books from this era. But this issue is not one of those. Gods for Hire, number one. The good thing is, you will almost certainly never see this book in the wild. But if you do, know that it's not worth a quarter. Now that hardly ever happens on this show, and I suppose I could check, but I have the feeling that it's been quite a while since an issue failed to meet the very low standards that this podcast celebrates. And that mercifully wraps up our coverage of Gods for Hire number one, bringing podcast episode 143 to a close. To a merciful close. Next time. Well, I was looking back at the last few episodes and looking ahead at the next few episodes, what's scheduled, and I noticed that we've talked about and will be talking about a lot of issue number ones and other low-numbered issues. Now, obviously, statistically speaking, more number one issues of comics are published than any other number, and then number twos and number threes and number fours, etc. And when a book does poorly, doesn't sell, and gets tossed into the cheap bins, you know, it's likely to be a series that only went three or five or seven issues or so, or like God's for Hire, two issues. So you're going to find a lot of low-numbered books in the cheap ends. That's just the nature of the, the, the math of the situation. But I decided to rebel against that trend by looking through the entire quarter bin database for the highest number issue I had. And no, I don't have any books from DC's One Million event. So... Tossing aside all pretense of randomness, I went with that, the highest numbered book that I had. And I was very surprised by what it was. So all of that is to say that next time, we'll be covering Four Color Comics, issue 1253, also known as Spaceman Number 1. So I guess I'm not really getting away from that trend, am I? <laughs> this is from Dell Comics, cover dated January through March 1962. A book that's older than I am. I mean, with this one, we are looking at a comic of legitimate Paul Spatero vintage. 
if you have any questions or comments about this issue, obscure books from the 1980s, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.